You're listening to Community Supported Radio, KVMR, FM, Nevada City, KCPC, Camino Placerville, and it's time for the Wednesday edition of KVMR's Evening News. For their support, we'd like to thank Mama Madrone's Eco Emporium on Broad Street, Nevada City, offering earth-friendly, sustainably made clothing, local and fair trade artisan gifts, home decor and jewelry, and organic bedding and body care. Online store and information, mamamadrones.com. Also, Harmony Books of Nevada City, locally owned for over 25 years, next to the Chamber of Commerce at 130 Main Street, open Monday through Saturday, 10 to 5. 30, Sundays, 11 to 4. Harmony Books carries thousands of books, including local authors. After the NPR headlines and local weather, we'll hear an interview that Steve Baker did on his morning show on Monday with Alden Olmsted. They'll be talking about the Independence Trail on the South Fork of the Yuba River. Alden's dad, John Olmsted, helped to build the trail many years ago, and it was severely damaged in this week's fire. Also, we'll have a report from the Public News Service on health care in California and a commentary by George Rabin. But first, NPR headlines followed by local weather. Live from NPR News, I'm Jack Spear. The Trump administration has stirred concern and confusion by rewriting the guidelines for coronavirus testing. NPR's Richard Harris reports public health experts fear they are intended to reduce testing. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention quietly updated its webpage Monday with new testing guidelines. The old guidelines said anyone who had significant exposure to someone with coronavirus should get tested. The new guidelines leave that decision to people's doctors and state and local public health officials. Public health officials have been alarmed by the change, fearing it will reduce testing. But an administration official says the intent was to give more power to state and local health officials so they can make more strategic decisions about who should get tested. Admiral Brett Gerois said he expected the number of tests to rise, not fall. Richard Harris, NPR News. A black conservative running for Congress in Utah is set to speak at the Republican National Convention tonight. Burgess Owens is in a race that could test the GOP's ability to recapture the suburban districts that gave Democrats control of the House. Owens is a former NFL player and Fox News commentator who handily won the Republican primary. The 69-year-old political newcomer and supporter of President Trump is trying to reclaim the suburban Salt Lake City seat, once held by Mia Love, another black conservative who lost in 2018 to a moderate Democrat. Final preparations are underway as Hurricane Laura barrels toward the Louisiana and Texas coasts. Forecasters now predicting that storm will make landfall as a Category 4 hurricane with sustained winds of 145 miles an hour and deadly storm surge. Paul Braun of member station WRKF has the story. Louisiana Governor John Bell Edwards says time is running out for people in the path of the storm to get to safety. Coastal parishes can expect up to 20 feet of storm surge. Levels, Edwards says, the state hasn't seen in more than 50 years. You're going to hear the word unsurvivable to uh, describe the storm surge that we are expecting. Parts of the state are already experiencing the early effects of the storm. 
and the state's evacuation efforts will soon give way to search and rescue operations. Forecasters from the National Weather Service in New Orleans say damage from high winds could render large swaths of southwest Louisiana and southeast Texas unrecognizable. For NPR News, I'm Paul Braun in Baton Rouge. Authorities in Kenosha, Wisconsin, say a white 17-year-old from Illinois has been arrested and charged with first-degree intentional homicide in the killing of two people during a third night of protest over the police shooting of a black man. Last night's fatal shooting was captured on cell phone video, which shows the suspect wielding a semi-automatic rifle. Continued blowout profits in the tech sector helped power the market higher again today. The Dow up 83 points. The Nasdaq rose 198 points. The S&P 500 gained 35 points. This is NPR. The U.S. military says it killed six al-Shabaab extremists in an airstrike after the al-Qaeda-linked group attacked Somali forces while U.S. forces were nearby. U.S. Africa Command in a statement saying the airstrike was carried out near a village in Somalia after al-Shabaab fighters attacked from a building. The statement says three of the fighters were wounded. It says no U.S. forces were killed or injured. EU Trade Commissioner Phil Hogan is resigning under fire after he was exposed for attending a golf dinner in Ireland in violation of COVID-19 restrictions. As NPR's Frank Langfitt reports from London, Hogan attended the event after flying in from Europe and failing to restrict his movement for two weeks, as was required. Phil Hogan said he tested negative for the coronavirus earlier this month. The EU Trade Commissioner insisted he'd followed the rules but admitted making mistakes. In fact, eyewitnesses said that after Hogan arrived in Ireland, he hadn't been self-isolating. For instance, he'd been using a public restaurant and bar in County Kildare, west of Dublin. Hogan's resignation comes as the European Union and the United Kingdom struggle to hammer out a post-Brexit free trade deal. If the two sides fail to reach agreement, the result will be more damage to economies that are already in recession. Frank Langford, NPR News, London. More people exercising at home rather than going to the gym during the coronavirus pandemic translated into strong second quarter earnings for Dick's Sporting Goods. Retailer says its second quarter results easily beat Wall Street expectations. For the quarter, the company says it earned $276.8 million or $3.12 a share. That's well above the dollar and 24 cents a share that analysts were expecting. This is NPR. And taking a look at the weather, first here in the Grass Valley, Nevada City area, looks like it'll be sunny all week, low of 68 tonight with highs of 86 tomorrow, with highs generally in the mid to upper 80s all week. Sacramento, sunny all week again, with low of 57 tonight, high of 93 tomorrow, 98 on Friday, and highs in the low to mid 90s over the weekend. And in Truckee, low of 41 tonight, high of 83 tomorrow, mostly sunny through next week with highs in the low 80s. Got this email last week uh, from... The Bear Yuba Land Trust. Dear friends, it is with heavy hearts we report that the beloved Independence Trail has suffered significant damage from the Jones Fire this week. We have recently learned that all wooden structures within the fire perimeter along Independence Trail West, including the iconic flume spanning Rush Creek and the Rush Creek Ramp, were consumed by the blaze. Built with the hands of local volunteers under the vision of John Olmsted, this heartfelt endeavor became the first wheelchair access accessible 
Wilderness Trail in the United States. Joining us on the line right now is the son of John Olmsted, a familiar voice here on KVMR, Alden Olmsted. Hi, Alden. Hey, Steve. How are you today? We're doing good. We're still feeling a pretty sad, a, a lot pretty sad about uh, the Independence Trail. Yes. Um, I, as I mentioned in the article, uh, I think or the, the 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 bit last week. I, you know, I I I knew the truth was probably out there, and I just avoided the the news and avoided the updates for a few days because I kind of just figured out the inevitable that uh, you know being so dry. And looking at the map of the fire, I just, I think on Wednesday night, I just kind of assumed yeah. that that was the case, you know. Well, maybe you can tell us a little about uh, about, about your dad and his relationship to uh, building the Independence Trail. Well, sure. The, uh, I mean, dad, you know, was famous for, I think, 12 different parcels across California, roughly along the line of Highway 20. That's uh, the easiest way to think about it. And that started with Mendocino in 1972. That became a state park in 1976, Jug Handle State Park. And when Dad left the Sonoma County area and parents got divorced, he found Nevada City. I don't know exactly, you know, I, I guess I should have asked him that before he died. I don't know exactly how he found the Grass Valley, Nevada City area. He lived, I think, in Rough and Ready. But I just remember hearing snippets of, you know, your dad found some land, and, and dad's saying used to be his type of land was, uh, was steep and cheap. <laughs> and so if, if he found steep and cheap land, that was the type that he was going to try to buy. And so apparently in the late 70s when he found, you know, the Excelsior Flume, I'm sure he bought it for – I'm sure there's records. I'm sure he bought it for a song, put down 50 bucks or something, and then did what he did, you know, tried to raise money and um, – and, and purchased the land as part of Sequoia Challenge, and that would be his, I don't know, his second or third nonprofit, I guess, that he created with Sequoia Challenge. And he married his second wife, Sally uh, Yates Olmsted, and she had a daughter in a wheelchair. And at some point, he put two and two together, as, as visionaries do, and he had this grand vision that this, this level flume that had been carried, used to carry water um, you know, through the hills of Nevada County in the 1800s and 1900s to, to do the, the, the damage that the hydraulic strip mining did, um, you know, could maybe be repurposed for a better use. And that would be a, a wheelchair nature trail. And, you know, <laughs> amazingly, as, as we've seen before, he, he did it. And nowhere, apparently nowhere else in the country had this been done at that time. Uh, to, to to actually have a a uh, trail in uh, nature that uh, that was that, w- that was designed to uh, accommodate uh, wheelchairs. Right, and and I don't know, you know, I'm sure the uh, I'm sure there is an association. The ADA approval process is probably pretty rigorous, and uh, you know, we've joked over the years that the, whether the trail would um, even before the fire would have would have gotten the recognition or gotten that designation again but but yes i'm sure they have a list of of trails and i don't think there's any any doubt that a trail like the independence trail where you really get to you know get the wheels dirty and and obviously the special part of going down the switchbacks to the creek and being able to 
enjoy nature and hear the Rush Creek, the falls, when it's, especially when it's going good in the spring, going well, and, um, you know, the fall colors, the newts on the ground, the wildflowers in spring. I mean, it's just, it's just a magical place. And, and also it, that the flume that burned was, I think, for most people, especially people with kids, provided a, a pretty decent, um, you know, there and back point to have lunch, go down by the creek and enjoy, um, you know, the sound of the water and the view of the canyon and just one of those hidden gems that, um, that, that was able to get a lot of people together. You know, I'd, obviously we know that dad, his personality was this crazy catalyst, you know, missionary type, uh, fervent, fervent, fervent person that, that, that went and started these projects. But the truth is, Many, many thousands of hands and and uh, hammers helped over the years to build that trail, to develop it, to finish it, and to keep it clean and and accessible all these years. I think we have to honor those people as well during this time. I'm looking at a thing that uh, something that the that the Mary Yuba uh, Land Trust put out that said in the 1970s, John Olmsted, a docent of the Oakland Museum. Uh, we discovered the rock-lined ditches, uh, adjacent paths for ditch tenders, and wood bridges, also known as flumes, which provided access over the steep canyon ravines. Upon seeing the, the old flumes, Olmsted was inspired to construct Independence Trail using the framework provided by the historic mining legacy. Soon, this unusual path would fulfill his friend's lifetime dream uh, of reaching out and touching the wildflowers from a, wheeled, from a wheelchair in nature. After years of tireless dedication and land purchases to- totaling over 1,000 acres, John enlisted the help of many generous donors and numerous hardworking volunteers to create the country's very first wheelchair-accessible wilderness trail. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, much better, much better than I can say. I know it's very well said. And um, and yes, he was, his involvement at the Oakland Museum, when the Oakland Museum was brand new, he was doing his across California trips with school kids from the Bay Area. And so they would, they would do day trips in a big yellow bus. It was called the Earth Bus. And they would start at the, at the docks in Albany, at, in Berkeley at the pier. And they would stop at the I think in Martinez, maybe at the Muir House, they would go to the, in Vacaville, the Peña Adobe, and obviously Dad would talk about his favorite highway, the old Lincoln Highway, and eventually they would end up in Grass Valley and Nevada City and end up at, the, at what is now the Independence Trail. And so on those trips was when he found, um, was when he found the land. And when, I'm not sure if he's listening right now, but Rob Lee was actually, I think, the first guy on the wheelchair to, to actually test the trail out. And uh, he's, he builds guitars now. He's a crazy cool guy, and he lives in Napa. And I hope he's listening, Rob, if you're listening. Uh, he's featured in, in uh, my film, My Father Who Art in Nature, about my dad. And obviously we all know that Greg Schiffner has amazing footage of the building of Independence Trail. Everyone today, this week, should go out and buy or watch Stories of the Yuba by Greg Schiffner, which has a great little middle section on you know, the people that helped uh, save the South Yuba River State Park. Mm. Yeah, yeah, th- that, would be a, that, that would be a good thing for folks to do. And I know there, uh, the, uh, uh, the, bear, uh, the, the, uh, the, the Bear Yuba... Um, land Trust. Yeah, Land Trust <laughs> is asking people to share their stories about the Independence Trail um, at uh, yeah. hashtag Independence Trail. 
Um, great. So, That's great. So well, that, I mean, how many, how many, how many local, um, you know, how many local people in their 30s and 40s had had school trips, you know, uh, field trips to the Independence Trail when they were kids? I'm sure. I'm sure people like Caleb Dardick and uh, um, Jason Rainey, uh, early early members of Circle. I'm sure they. I'm sure they grew up going there uh, with their, you know, with their brown with their brown bag lunches and uh, you know searching for newts and and enjoying the being so out in nature, so close to town. Well, and 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 point in fact, Caleb Dardick is going to be joining us to talk about uh, about a uh, of a fu- a new fund to uh, help uh, the victims of the Jones fire um, uh, be able to uh, to. Recoup, you know, to recuperate and uh, great and and, uh, and help them out and and yeah. but, and so we'll have to we'll, we'll we'll have to ask him about that when he when he when he's uh, when he joins us um, yeah uh, so did you did you get to spend a lot of time at the Independence Trail well you know unfortunately during that time was there was the time when I was most separated from dad so as you can imagine he gets remarried and um, you know, we didn't see him a lot during those times because he was so involved in the, in the trail and in building it. Um, but once, once I reconnected with him, we, we did go out there a lot and, um, you know, it's just, it's, it's one of those magical places that you, I think when you park and you get started on it, I think I, I try to see it through the eyes of a kid. I, if I was a kid about eight to 12 years old, I would think, what the heck are we doing in this old ditch? This is not exciting at all. I can picture myself, you know, spouting to whoever's leading me, thinking, thinking, what are we doing? And then, is it the nature and the and the, well, no pun intended, the nature of the trail, the nature of the trail, forces you, at least in my opinion, to slow down, and get separated from the highway, and your cell phone drops the signal. And you you just have to get out there in nature, and and then you if it's in the spring or the early summer, you start to hear the sound of the water, and you get closer, and then you open up into this huge canyon, and you think, where the heck did this come from? I mean, I'll never forget the first time I saw the flume was when Dad had helped save it from the last fire. I think it was called the Forty Nine er Fire. Yeah. Yep. And nineteen eighty seven, I think that was. Was it? Uh, yeah, and so somewhere around there, some yeah. pictures, and and mom had said, "Well, your dad, you know, your dad. There's a big fire, and he had had an A-frame cabin off of, uh, I don't know, Owl Creek Road or something, um, and that fi- that cabin burned to the ground. And but he saved his home, and then I think he went illegally. He grabbed a PG and E hard hat, and he went into the Independence Trail. And there used to be a payphone, and he made a phone calls, uh, trying to direct the uh, helicopters where to drop the water." during the 49er fire. And so I saw these pictures and thought, what the, where the heck is that? It's some canyon and there's this big trestle bridge. And when I finally saw it, I just thought, well, now I know why he was so adamant about saving it. This, this place is pretty amazing. And it's just, you know, as things change, we just, we see less and less of something original from the past. And I know over the years, dad was, when they put up the railings for blind people, even though dad wanted it accessible, he was, I remember he was complaining a little bit about, you know, he wanted the historical significance retained and he kind of had to give up some, some of that control. And that was what it was like to work with John Olmstead. There was, 
you know, there was both sides of it. And <laughs> so, you know, it will be rebuilt. I mean, thankfully, this wasn't started by some needless, you know, arson or silliness. This is, what was there, 376 uh, fires started in the state by, by lightning? Um, yeah, something like that, yeah. Something like that. I mean, and the lightning was, was beautiful. I mean, it was amazing. And, you know, Dad, I think I share that with my dad as far as the John Muir mentality. If there's a windstorm, I want to be, I want to be swaying back and forth on the top of that tree. Um, and I think Dad was right there. So you can't feel too bad about it as, as far as how it was started. And, you know, nature does replenish and, and rebuild and, um, and have to cleanse things away. And so I think the positive from this, in my opinion, will be that it will, it will get the community energized. People will re- be reminded of what a gem it was. And um, I believe it will get rebuilt better than it was. Steve? Hey, Alden, thanks so much for joining us here this morning. Okay. Next up, we have this report from the Public News Service. Advocates trying to drive down the cost of health care are pressing lawmakers to consider a bill to regulate for-profit health care mergers before the end of the legislative session this coming Monday. SB 977 would give Attorney General Javier Becerra the power to review or reject mergers of for-profit health systems, the same way he does now for nonprofit deals. Anthony Wright with the consumer advocacy group Health Access says mega mergers are a big reason why the health care costs are so high, especially in the northern half of the Golden State. A study by UC Berkeley suggests that inpatient rates in Northern California were 79% higher than in Southern California for the same procedures, and that was largely because of the consolidation in this region. Groups representing hospitals and doctors oppose the bill, saying it gives the state too much power to interfere in private contracts. The bill also would give the AG more tools to pursue hospital chains for anti-competitive practices. Wright contends that mergers have given some large health care systems a near monopoly in certain counties and thinks the public interest, not profit, needs to be paramount. If we're going to have this consolidation and transformation of our health care system, we want there to be public oversight and not have these deals only be considered in private boardrooms. SB 977 already has been approved by the state Senate and needs a full vote of the Assembly to advance to the governor's desk. For Public News Service, I'm Suzanne Potter. You are listening to community-supported radio, KVMR, FM, Nevada City, KCPC, Camino Placerville, and this is the Wednesday edition of KVMR's Evening News. KVMR's news program airs Monday through Friday, 6 to 6.30 p.m. Coming up at 6.30, we have this week's edition of The Sages Among Us, and at 7 o'clock, Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. Closing out today's newscast, we have George Rabain with a commentary. KVMR Commentary, 26 August 2020. California's blackouts blight. California's irregular power blackouts remind us of visits to third world countries. 
As with our state's recent and still ongoing water shortages, these power blackouts are totally man-made. We are needlessly doing it to ourselves to achieve political objectives neither known nor shared by most Californians. Our electrical grid is operated by the California Independent Systems Operator, or CASO, the organization that determines the amount of electricity available to the utilities and allocates it across the state. For years, we have known that the politically sponsored schedule of switching the state to renewables was untenable. Last September, CASO warned that electricity shortages were possible during a normal heat wave in the near term due to our rapid shift to renewable and less reliable power sources like solar and wind. The blackouts we're talking about here are power shortage blackouts, not the public safety power shutoffs to prevent the start of disastrous wildfires by tree branches blown against power lines. The power shortage blackouts are due only to our premature removal of natural gas and nuclear generating stations, and their replacement by sometime wind and solar power. Governor Newsom responded to the increasing public outcry against blackouts by admitting, quote, We failed to predict and plan for these shortages, unquote, and then followed that with a tautology and a sanguine conclusion, quote, Our capacity for storage in particular substantially needs to be improved, but I am confident in our capacity to deal with that, unquote since the state, quote, cannot sacrifice reliability going forward. And with those pronouncements delivered, we continue with business as usual. Even Loretta Lynch, former U.S. Attorney General and California Public Utilities Commission President, states that, quote, Queso doesn't know how to manage the grid, unquote. Such assessments from Democrat leaders further support that because government has been the incompetent and unreliable watchdog of the power industry, all kinds of games are being played by utilities, middlemen, and generators, as politicians have come up with poorly thought-out policies for our state. The bottom line here is that if we're to continue progressing toward 100% renewables while providing reliable power to consumers and industry, then we must have fossil fuel or nuclear backup generating capacity for years, perhaps decades to come. Pursuing any other policy today is to guarantee increasing power shortage blackouts and their collateral damage indefinitely. Looking at today's big picture for California adds power shortages to water shortages, to highest fuel costs, to regulatory overburdens, housing shortages, ever higher taxes, homeless encampments everywhere, and on and on. The result today is that only the large corporatist enterprises and the very rich are the benefactors of California's still-growing economy, as they are immune to the nation's top tax and regulatory burdens that are visited primarily on the backs of the remaining middle class. The result is the great California exodus. We export productive workers and businesses and import the indigent and illegals, seeking the loudly promised government handouts that are the common currency for vote-buying. The poor, sheltered from the heavy hand of government for all the obvious reasons, are the recipients of ever-increasing redistribution of largesse. The most plausible and visible reason for this dismal state of affairs is our long-reigning political monopoly. 
Single-party management of public affairs has allowed state regulatory agencies to become both indifferent and incompetent. In all spheres of human activity, competition is the only cure for incompetence, and that applies to single-party control of a state's politics, policies, and administrative oversight. Dominant socialist and communist regimes have demonstrated this truth for over a century now. For decades, voters in California have succumbed to the siren song of ever more socialist policies promised and delivered by the Democratic Party. In the final analysis, what we have today we have done to ourselves by ensconcing single-party state and local governments that have effectively shut down all opposing political and policy alternatives. My name is Rubain, and I also expand on this and related themes on Rubain's Ruminations, where the indented transcript of this commentary is posted with relevant links and where such issues are debated extensively. However, my views are not necessarily shared by KVMR. Thank you for listening. Well, that's our newscast for this evening. KVMR's Evening News airs Monday through Friday, 6 to 6.30 p.m. Special thanks today to Steve Baker and George Rabane. If you've heard something on this newscast you'd like to hear again, you can go to our website at kvmr.org where you can download audio or listen on demand. Coming up next, we have this week's edition of The Sages Among Us, and at 7 o'clock, Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. KVMR Radio thanks you for listening. Have a great evening.